Hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms. I'm Matt Renner, the Executive Director of the World Business Academy, and I'm here with Ronaldo Brutico, the Academy's President and Founder. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit business think tank and action incubator dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, business students, and the public at large in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. Today we're covering our traditional topics including domestic politics and the U.S. economy, the international economic outlook, the economic doomsday clock, and more. But we also have a very special guest this week, a renowned energy expert and future historian who will join us to discuss the future of the energy system. But first, Ronaldo, let's start with the domestic politics and the outlook for the U.S. economy. Well, uh, how's this coming through today, Matt? I know we had some technical difficulties. You sound great. Okay, great. Um, so uh, basically the U.S. economy, I, I think the biggest story happening right now is what's going on with the really great jobs report. And, and I'd just like to, to, to talk for a minute about um, why that has some implications that are obviously good from the point of view of people who are going to be employed. Uh, we're at about 5.5% unemployment right now, uh, which is very close to structural unemployment, uh, structural employment, which is 4%. I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute. And when I look at the 5.5% unemployment rate, you know, and it's this solid gain of about 200, 220,000 jobs, I think it'll show when we've got it completely revised. Uh, month after month, that's all coming from the private sector. In other words, one of the things that the Congress has done really wrong in this whole recession is they haven't provided adequate stimulus. So they, they've, they've, they've bought into this false belief that austerity somehow would be good for you, and it hasn't worked anywhere in the world, including Europe, it hasn't worked in the UK, and it hasn't worked here. Uh, fortunately for the U.S., the pent-up demand has been very strong in the U.S., and as a result, even though we have had we have fewer people working for government at all levels today than we had in 2007, so net unemployment, we've had enough strong employment in the private sector, despite the lack of support from the government, that we're seeing a, another great month of, of, of job increases. Now, I think when you combine that good news together with the good news on the uh, wage increases that people are getting as a result of the increase in the minimum wage, and a you know, happy thing to report on that front, L.A., I think two days ago, uh, went to $15 an hour is going to be their new minimum wage in Los Angeles, which is great. So when you've got all these jurisdictions that are adopting higher minimum wage standards, and you've got companies like Walmart and Home Depot and others who are lift, voluntarily lifting above the federal minimum, which is 725. What you're getting is a, a double lift for the consumer. You're getting more money in the hands of people who spend every penny they can get because they can barely survive. So people living at minimum wage in this country don't have a savings account. They're spending everything they, they, they get just to stay alive, which feeds back into the consumption pattern for the overall economy. But you're also getting this nice lift from more people being employed. So I'm very pleased with the numbers, and I think what it's going to do is to put pressure on the Fed to want to raise the interest rates by the third or fourth quarter of this year, as many people think they will. Now, I personally think that may be a little premature. I'd like to get at least another couple of quarters of economic growth under our belt because, again, the government's not stimulating, they're not helping so it would be great if we could stiffen up the private sector a little bit more, get more consumption going on, and then raise our interest rates, preferably to me in the first quarter of, of 2016. 
But I think what this good jobs report is going to do, and you're going to be hearing a lot about this on the news, together with the rising uh, of minimum wage around the country, I think you're going to see enough push that the Fed probably will go through with raising interest rates in the third or fourth quarter. And that has some very direct implications for all of us, particularly people who are thinking of buying a home. But let me stop there for a minute and uh, just throw a ball back to you, Matt. Is there anything in particular you would like me to cover? Yeah, well, you touched on the idea of full employment, structural unemployment. Do you want to go into that now? I think that's an important uh, definition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we used to do a thing on the show all the time and um, called financial literacy. And what that section of the show was where we would try and take a term that economists throw around and help people understand what it means. One of those terms is called structural full employment. And, and it's generally regarded for the last 30-plus years – that at some level, the economy has to have unemployment just to lubricate the transition of people between jobs. So from the time somebody leaves the job to the time they get the job, they're unemployed. Well, that, diff- that timing alone will cause a certain amount of unemployment. There's relocations of people, retraining of people, lots of things that cause people to be temporarily as opposed to permanently unemployed. That, that number in the U.S. has been widely thought to be around 4%. So if, if 4% is, in effect, when you're at 4% unemployment, you're, you're at structural full employment, it means that we're only about 1.5% higher than, than, than the floor, so to speak. And the significance of that is it means we're probably going to see some wage improvements. So we've begun in the last three months to see some real wage improvement, meaning that the gap between what people make, their disposable income that they get to play with, and what they need to pay for their basic necessities – um, is going gonna, is gonna to continue to go up. Now, at the moment, many economists are concerned that the American public is saving too much. They're saving over 5% of disposable income. I personally think it's a good thing. I think it's long overdue. I don't think we should become the savers that they are, say, in Japan or in Italy. But I think that the, that, that the savings rate we have is finally at a reasonable number. And I think people are being prudent and I want all the listeners to hear this. If you've got credit card debt, by all you means, before you go buy something else, pay down your credit card debt. If you've got uh, any kind of debt that you can pay down without a penalty, seriously look at paying that debt down. Because what you'll find is that even if you have a home mortgage, for example, and you pay down prematurely some of what you owe as principal, your monthly payment won't go down, but it will accelerate the time that your, your payoff occurs. It's amazing how many years get dropped off your mortgage if you just prepay a little bit each month. So that's a form of savings. I just want to urge people uh, to believe that savings is a good thing. You're going to see increasing income and disposable income. I do believe you will also see a return to increased consumption patterns. And I think it's a much healthier balance today than it was in, say, 2007. And the other issue that uh, you identified was uh, continued consumer spending being being sluggish compared to where some estimates uh, thought it would be at this point. What's what's behind that? Well, it's the savings thing I just alluded to. That what's happening is that people are are saving at a higher rate, a little over five percent than they have historically, and certainly through the recession. So people, economists, calculated what the economy would be like if people's consumption patterns returned to the same level of spending that it was at in 2007. And I'm happy to see that the American public has grown up and matured a little bit, and they're spending a little bit less. They're actually starting to save a little bit. And I think that's a good thing. I think um, businesses 
should be alert to paying down their debt, and clearly consumers should as well. And particularly, if you tie it to my first comment about inflation, I mean, interest rates going up. See, with interest rates going up in the fall, or best case, first quarter 2016, the cost of debt to the consumer is going to go up. So you really want to have as little debt as possible. And if you can pay some of that debt down rather than just consume, 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 it's a good thing. Uh, there's a balance. And in our economy, since two-thirds or more of the economy is supported by consumer spending, uh, we're dependent on consumer spending. But I'm, I'm not worried about the American public becoming uh, pecuniary. I think that they'll continue to spend at, at a very healthy clip. And so I think we're having a, a, high, a brief a slowdown in spending, but the actual rate of spending is increasing from where it was just a year ago. It's just not as increasing as fast as the economists had predicted, and the reason isn't is because we're saving a little bit more, and I think it's a better balance today than it was, say, in 2007. So here we are in the middle of June, and uh, I'm wondering if there's the factors that you just mentioned, would, would you revise your GDP outlook for the uh, for the U.S. this year? Yeah, I probably would. Um, I normally don't do that in the middle of the year unless something really major happens. Um, I think we were predicting 3 to 3.2% for the full year. Uh, my guess is we're probably in the 25 to 3% for the full year. Uh, I think we'll be doing better than 2.5% GDP growth in the second half of the year. Um, but I don't know that we'll do enough to catch up uh, with what we lost because the first quarter was really bad due to the weather. I mean, the first quarter we really got hit hard by the weather. And we're not bouncing back quite as fast because the spending and savings rates are changing. But I think that uh, we're in a much better solid position as a result. So I'm going to say 25 to 2.75% GDP growth is very realistic, doable. We could hit three if we got lucky, uh, but I think 25 to three is definitely the range. Great. And just quickly to uh, politics on the U.S. front. Um, First of all, right before we went on air here, it looks like the TPP uh, procedural uh, effort to get it through the Senate has failed, and there is a serious roadblock in the effort to push through the fast track for the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal. Do you have any comments on that? Great news, Matt. Um, I, I did, I've been in a meeting, so I didn't see that news release. I, I'm really pleased because I, um, I, I think there's a couple of fundamental flaws with the TPP. Uh, most people point to organized labor and say, well, the fear is that we'll lose jobs. And there is that realistic fear. I think that's not an insubstantial fear. But my problem with TPP is bigger than that. Uh, I think that Elizabeth Warren has been extremely accurate and perceptive in her, in her approach to the TPP. This deal was cut by multinational corporations in back rooms with no visibility. If this was a safe treaty, if this treaty was going to be good for the American public, why didn't we see it? Why don't we get to see it so we can decide whether we want to fast track it or not? And the reason I believe that the administration would say is because if they tip their hand on what's there now, they won't be able to negotiate it to a final position. I'm sorry, Mr. President, I, I, I respectfully disagree. I have seen the American business community take advantage of you over and over again, and you have not been adequate to the task of defending yourself against egregious interests which have sought to take advantage of you. So I could, I could list names of companies and various activities. I'm not going to do that in this uh, broadcast. If someone wants to ask, I'll give you a few. But at the end of the day, 
I think that the president is not up to being able to stop what multinational business wants to do under the cloak of this secrecy. So I was very concerned about environmental protection under these rules. I'm very concerned someone like Monsanto, for example, could use these rules to be able to make it illegal to, to label GMO foods. So you, right now, the only two countries in the civilized world that don't label GMOs are Canada and the U.S., and I could see this trade potentially being at TPP being used to force everybody else to stop labeling GMOs as a way for Monsanto to consolidate its control over global agriculture. So unless I can see that that won't happen, which I wasn't allowed to look, I'm not going to feel good about TPP. So my feeling is, I'm sorry, Mr. President, I'd rather you not have the power to fast track it. We have, we have treaties, you know, there's 11 nations affected by this, Matt, 11. I believe we have existing trade agreements with at least 10 of them. So this is not something that we can't do on a nation-by-nation basis in the full light of day. And if the president said to his supporters, well, you know, it's so difficult dealing with Republicans in Congress, I can't get anything good unless I do it in secret. You know, Mr. President, I don't agree. I just don't agree. I think Elizabeth Warren is right. If you can't do it in public in the full light of day, we'd prefer not to do it at all, particularly under the situation where the politics of this country has not been very – sanguine, hasn't been very smart, hasn't been very wise, and therefore I'm concerned about the trade-offs that would be getting made behind those closed doors. So if it stops the TPP, I'm really happy. I don't think we need it. And I do think that there are enough things we can do one nation at a time that we're, we got any issues we have with opening up trade, we can deal with that way without a massive master agreement that no one's allowed to see. Excellent. Well, while we're celebrating, I think this is a great time to introduce our guest, uh, our guest is Lorenzo Christoph. He's an energy economist and an expert who's been working in the electricity field in California for over 20 years. His latest article is titled The Future History of Tomorrow's Energy Network, and it's in May's edition of Fortnightly Magazine. Lorenzo, are you with us? Yes, I'm here, Matt. Hi, Lorenzo. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, uh, and thanks to you and Ronaldo for inviting me to participate. I'm glad to be here. Well, it's not only inviting you to participate, but thanks for participating twice, Lorenzo. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, as often as possible, early and often. For our listeners, I want to report that we had the first technical difficulty in the five years we've been doing this show, uh, and poor Lorenzo had to suffer through it with us, and today everything seems like it's working. So, Lorenzo, I just wanted to welcome you, and I hope you like the term future historian. It was coined by a very smart woman at the peak of her intellectual prowess, Marilyn Ferguson. And she said somebody goes out into the future in their mind and looks back to see what would have been revealed uh, from the future, looking back as a historian, can actually lay out a track for how to get to the future. And that's what you've done in this article, Tomorrow's Energy Network. You've laid out a track between here and 2030, that 15-year critical period, of what you saw evolve. You, you want to just share with us what you saw? Sure. Um, Let me start with the motivation for why I wrote that article, because I have been involved in some of the proceedings going on around the country. Um, New York and California are both doing things to think about modernizing their distribution system. The real big thing that's happening is what I would call decentralization, moving to more small-scale local resources. We all see it in the form of rooftop solar and battery electric vehicles. But that's just really the beginning. Uh, The technologies are changing so rapidly 
that buildings are able to become their own microenergy systems. And university campuses we have, for example, at UC San Diego, at Princeton in, uh, in, in the East, and NYU, microgrids where uh, a collection of, of buildings around a campus can be an integrated energy system that can operate on their own without relying on the grid. And, and this decentralization movement completely overturns the paradigm that's been dominant in electricity for decades, uh, which is the notion of central stations being the source, big power plants, two, three, four, over a thousand megawatts. In the case of some of the nuclear plants, 2000 megawatts. And they're all in large, they're large and centralized locations. And then power flows one way, it leaves these generating plants, it goes over the transmission system, then it goes out the distribution wires to customers. What that has meant from um, an operational perspective is that the distribution systems have largely been passive. They pick up energy from the transmission grid, they send it out to customers one way. With this revolution in small-scale technology, decentralized technologies, number one, it completely overhauls the business of operating a distribution system because now consumers, what were formerly consumers, can also be producers. We can have microgrids. We'll have a proliferation of energy, uh, of electric vehicle charging stations, for example, battery storage, and other kinds of storage at different scales. So with this revolution uh, and my involvement in some of the forums that are going on, conferences and state proceedings, and even some national efforts at the uh, Department of Energy that I've been involved in, there's lots of awareness, very, very well understood about the forces of change that are affecting every aspect of the industry. But there has been a lot of uh, thinking about where exactly is this leading us? Where will we be in 15 years or 20 years or 25 years? We know the goals are to reduce the environmental footprint, but there hasn't been a vision of what this system might look like which I called the vision gap, and I thought, well, you know, a really good exercise to do right now is to create that alternative picture, create that vision of the future so that we have in, in our minds, in a sense, um, a vision of where it is we're going. So I looked at the forces that were at play, and I looked at the capabilities of technology. I looked at things like, uh, for example, the concern with resilience, local resilience, that is a, a major factor in the New York proceeding. Having experienced Hurricane Sandy, whole neighborhoods losing service for a couple of weeks, and yet campuses like Princeton and New York University that had microgrids maintaining service through all of that because of just the nature of the microgrid and how it works, and said, well, let me try to paint a picture of what things might look like. And, uh, and so what I, what I wrote about in this article was essentially a vision where we have numerous small-scale electric systems on the size of, say, a small city or perhaps a county. I'm looking at the, the distribution system as where it meets the transmission grid. Take that one point of interconnection, which is usually a high-voltage to low-voltage substation. Look at the local area below that. Usually that is a city, a small city or a part of a, a city or a part of a county. So there's often a political jurisdiction associated with that area. And, um, and then think about the forces that are at play in our local communities. For example, the concern with local resilience. 
Um, but other other things as well, budgetary effects that cities and counties are having problems with with shrinking budget capabilities, and the awareness that there are huge synergies to be achieved through convergence of services. So, in fact, this morning I was at a symposium about food waste and the discussion of biodigesters and how this biodigester facility that was being described essentially produces its own electricity. It doesn't need to rely on the grid. So the ability to look at convergences between water supply, wastewater treatment, transportation, electricity, these all enable cities and counties to provide their municipal services in a much more self-reliant and a much more efficient way. And yet, even though we develop these local systems, there's still great value in staying connected to the transmission grid. I'm not suggesting that the transmission grid goes away, but a local area that has its own energy supply could perhaps supply 40, 50, 60, 70 percent of its needs and still stay connected to the grid to buy that other 20 or 30 percent through the wholesale market. Or at some times it may have a lot of resources and it produces more energy than it needs. So it could export that and sell it into the wholesale market. The wholesale market over a large area, especially in the western region, can provide great efficiencies for areas that have different impacts of climate in local areas, but then can take advantage of that weather diversity or climate diversity or water availability diversity to be able to trade excess energy with them. So I see these... Let me just jump in for a second because, uh, Lorenzo, first of all, people, I don't know if you realize, listeners, that that Lorenzo is one of the leading experts in the country, one of actually in the world, but certainly in the United States, on how to transmit energy from point to point, how to use it efficiently. Uh, And these views he's expressing are his own personal views, not those for the agency he is employed with in California. But he's what he's articulating is a comprehensive, complete picture. And, and, and I just want to break in here because so many of the things that you said, Lorenzo, to you and me and Matt, it's like every day we're so used to hearing them. But to the listeners, each, each one's like a separate chip in a mosaic. So, for example, you mentioned um, resilience. Uh, and you specifically, I think you mentioned um, Princeton and NYU as islanded in the Superstorm Sandy and how they were able to keep functioning. Um, we've got this terrible problem in Santa Barbara, as you may know, where uh, 220 kilovolts comes off of a line which Edison itself has identified as an imminent jeopardy of, of falling down, and yet we have no conversation happening anywhere in the state of California about how to protect us if that wire goes down. Uh, what do you think we should do? Well, I think uh, what is often missed in the discussions of the industry and where it's going, and, and this is certainly applicable to Santa Barbara, is that we're accustomed to thinking of change being initiated from the top and filtering it down. You know, we're accustomed to looking to Congress to make the right decisions and they set a policy and it filters down, or the state makes a decision and they set a policy and it filters down. I think the really exciting thing about the transformation that's happening now is that it's really a bottom-up revolution. And uh, and that's largely due to the capabilities of technologies, that just small scale is getting cheaper and more powerful. And, uh, and also the need is greater at a local level and the desire is greater to take more local control. So, you know, my response to your question... By the way, I just, be, uh, 
on that point, but go ahead, finish your response. I just wanted to give this, just just an hour ago, I was having this conversation. I want to share with you what the fellow I was having lunch with said. But go ahead, finish. Okay, your point. but just to to make it brief, my response to your question about Santa Barbara is that that really has to be initiated locally, and I, I think you know between the combination of uh, parties who are in a position to finance and develop local resources to meet the local needs in combination with forming, say, a community choice aggregation model, which um, I didn't mention before, but is is happening in um, Sonoma County in California, Marin County in California, City of Lancaster have done this. Many other cities are doing it. And, and, and by the way, Lorenzo, is, Lorenzo, as of yeah. this week, you can add one more. Santa okay. Barbara County supervisors a couple of days ago approved a four hundred thousand um, dollar feasibility study, and the city of Santa Barbara matched it with fifty thousand of their own. So there's four hundred fifty thousand on the table now in Santa Barbara for the feasibility study to launch our community choice energy system. And I'm I'm really happy that we got yeah. to add our hat to that ring. Uh, well, just ex- explaining to our listeners what those are. That means that once you form a quasi-governmental agency called the CCE, Community Choice Energy, uh, sometimes referred to as a CCA, as Lorenzo just did, um, it's synonymous. The CCE basically gives the people of a geographic region the right to, to actually request the kind of energy they want. They, they can request regular energy straight off the pipe, or they can get half green, or they can get all green. And by doing that, it gives power to the local entity to start controlling what the source of their energy is, which is only one step away from actually creating more of it locally. Mm-hmm. Um, in Santa Barbara also, Lorenzo, as you probably know, we, we are fighting for a mic- to create a microgrid here, and I'm very excited about that. And the point I was going to make about you said from top, it's the, from the bottom up, and, and, and I would just have this lunch. And this gentleman was saying to me, and he's a senior citizen, so it's an interesting story, and he said that when he put his solar cells in, his bill was over $500 a month for electricity. Today, it's less than that per year. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, did you calculate how much, how much return on investment you are getting from the solar system you put on your roof? And he said, yeah, it's a little over 11%. Now, wow. That's that's what's happening from the bottom up. Yeah. That's the bottom and that up. story is happening in lots of places uh, around the state and around the country. And, you know, for many people, it's not – it doesn't even depend on that return on investment in order to make that decision. And I think it's, that's part of what policymakers at the higher level tend to not recognize. They, they think that people make these pure economic decisions, and if the price isn't exactly right, they won't do it. But I think what we're seeing really is a change in consciousness about awareness of the impact you have on the environment and a desire to do something good, even if it costs a little bit more. Well, that plus I think there's – and let me go back to your first point, resilience. So here in Santa Barbara, one of the reasons we tell people you should be putting photovoltaic on your roof – and by the way, we'll be happy to refer you as a nonprofit. We don't make any money on this, but we can refer you to to reputable people in this town who are capable of installing great systems and doing it for a fair price. One of the things you get – the advantage is if that 220-kilovolt line, which, as I say, Edison has identified in imminent jeopardy of coming down – so we're not talking about – some scary story an environmentalist is telling to make Edison look bad. It's Edison's own sworn statement on the record. Well, if that were to happen and you've got solar on your roof, you're in much better shape than the guy next door. I'll tell you, if you've got solar and batteries in your garage and solar on the roof, you're in great shape. And yeah. I, I just wanted people to know that that's another reason to do solar is because you're not, you don't want to be at the hands of someone else's bad decision, in this case Edison. 
And and that's true. I'd, let me take that one just one extra step um, is that, you know, the individual house, the individual building owner can make that decision for greater resilience. But also with um, with the CCA structure, the community can decide to develop local resources so that people who are renters or who lives in live in apartments can also get that advantage because they're getting they're able to buy a share of the output of what's a community resource, even though they can't put it on their own roof. Yeah, and I just want to go back and, 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 and touch on the word islanding, because what you're talking about is a microgrid that can be freestanding in the midst of chaos like Superstorm Sandy. And I want people to know the Academy designs microgrids for all sorts of possibilities, and we can design them as small as an office park and as big as um, an entire city or county. Uh, I just had this one conversation yesterday, which was incredible, with the wastewater treatment facility in Goleta. And we took under advisement what they were doing with the methane gas that they generate and how they could actually be generating more with the same amount of waste material and how we could take that methane. And I think we might be able to run that entire plant and then Mm -hmm. some with its own energy. Well, if we can do that, that's what's called islanding, meaning should the grid go down for any reason, that plant, which has to process six, say, five to six million gallons of wastewater a day, doesn't go out of business. And that's really important when you're thinking about that kind of a flow-through of, of, a, uh, of a resource. So I'm hopeful that people realize this islanding thing is extremely important. That's true, especially where you've got essential services like wastewater treatment. You know, you really don't want them to be vulnerable. And, uh, and the ability to create these local energy self-reliant systems is tremendously powerful, which is why I think the appeal will continue to create a demand that brings the costs down and you get a positive feedback loop, essentially, that makes uh, these types of systems a lot more affordable and a lot more powerful in their capabilities. Yeah, and our associate, uh, their director of research, Bob Perry, made the point when they asked, well, what other incentives should we have for, for doing this, the wastewater treatment people? And we said, well, you know, if you are islanded, if you don't require power to keep running at the wastewater treatment facility in the event of an outage, that leaves more power for the hospital and the police stations and the schools. Mm-hmm. So um, anytime you can take and reduce your de- dependency on a distant source of generated power, you're empowering yourself and your neighbors to have more control in unfortunate circumstances, Superstorm Sandy being the most unfortunate, but our 220-kilovolt line hanging by a thread is another. I want to put up one other thing that that hasn't come up in the conversation. We do a lot of economics, Lorenzo, and for people who don't realize, a microgrid was created by the University of California San Diego system. It's been operating almost two years now, and it, it has saved that system $8 million a year in electrical costs. So it's not only that microgridding can be a good thing, and I'm not suggesting you'll make 11% like my senior citizen friend is, but I, I want you to know that you actually can save yourself some money or make money as you create microgrids in a collective sense. Do you want to comment on that? Um, no, I think you've said it. I, I, I think that's very true. I certainly would support that. I've had conversations with the folks at UC Santa Barbara as well, and I know that in a in a period where – the city of San Diego was somewhat at risk for losing power. The microgrid was actually able to export power to support the city as well. So, you know, with a big enough microgrid, it has that ability to export at times, which can help its surrounding area. Yeah, you said Santa Barbara, you meant San Diego, UCSD. I'm sorry, I meant San Diego. Yes, yeah, yeah. San Diego. Uh, just so the 
Uh, we are actually working, yeah. as you know, Lorenzo, with uh, UCSB, Santa Barbara. Uh, they're in the early stages, but just so people who are listening, uh, one of the exciting things in California is that Janet Napolitano, the president of the UC system, has mandated uh, each of the campuses get green by 2025, and to do that, we assume they'll all become microgrids. So we're, we're going to be pioneering out here, as usual, in California uh, with people like Lorenzo helping us. Uh, Matt, you've been listening to the interview. Is there anything you'd like to bring out? I- well, I just am, am so thankful for Lorenzo's work on this article, and I, I'll uh, include it in the show notes and a link to the the, the summary of it, Lorenzo. Um, and, it, and it squares with the technical work of yours that we've followed in the past and really appreciate. From your perspective uh, as a future historian and standing in this future of a more resilient and distributed grid, how did we get there uh, on a political front? Are there wh- what what kind of opinions and who whose opinions need to change so we can achieve that future scenario? Well, I think a certain amount of it is happening, um, and um, because when you get into the area of distribution systems, these are state jurisdictional for the most part. A lot of the uh, the incentives for houses to install rooftop solar. Yes, there are federal subsidies involved, but also the rate structures that are set by the state commissions play an important role in that. Or if you have a, uh, a municipal, a large municipal entity like LADWP or SMUD in Sacramento, it's their boards of governors um, that are setting the rates that create the incentives. Now, um, of course, in different parts of the country, there's a lot of variation in terms of how they're approaching it. But one of the common elements, I think, is this bottom-up drive that's coming simply due to the fact of technological change. The fact that you have big companies out there investing in making solar cheaper and home thermostats like Nest and control systems, electronic controls, and the linkage with the Internet and your cell phone being able to send signals to your house to adjust your thermostat half an hour before you go home, things like that. These capabilities are becoming impossible for any incumbents that might want to protect their territory to defend against. The landscape is changing. And a very interesting uh, story that I heard on on the program Living on Earth a couple of weeks ago, which is an NPR show, um, they were talking about the Public Utilities Commission in Georgia who was faced with a decision as to whether to allow more rooftop solar to uh, be done in their territory, um, the utility apparently uh, wanting to limit it. And uh, where they got the pushback was very conservative, politically conservative groups coming in and making a property rights argument, saying our house is our personal property. You can't tell us what we can put on our roof or not. And and so what we're seeing is some of the arguments from this bottom-up push are coming all over the place, playing out differently in different states. But All of the states, I think, have to realize that the old way of running a distribution system, that is this one-way transport from the grid to the end-use customer, that's on its way out. And so they all need to think about how do we modernize our systems so just so that they can be safe and reliable with this proliferation of new resources that's going to be connected. I think that's one of the drivers, and in many of the states, I've talked to commissioners in a few different states that are not nearly as far along as New York, California, and Hawaii, um, but uh, other states are now recognizing the need to do this. So they're kicking off 
grid modernization kinds of exercise, just asking, you know, how do we make it better? How do we accommodate these new, um, these new uh, capabilities and, and new uh, services that are going to be needed? How can we use distributed resources instead of investing in a distribution system upgrade? How can we use distributed resources to provide services to help maintain reliability, like to help manage voltage variation in real time. So these conversations are happening in all the state commissions. At the same time, there is a really interesting effort I've been involved in from uh, Department of Energy where called uh, Grid Architecture that um, they're essentially looking at a very technical level, the system architecture of the grid of the future once we move to a uh, a world where there's a very high penetration of distributed small-scale and renewable resources, kind of like what I talked about in, a, in more or less layman's terms in the article we start off with, but they're looking at it really in all of its complications. At, that is, how do you design the overall system all the way from the top, the, the regional interconnection, all the way down to the end-use customer so that it functions at a whole system, as a whole system, and you look at things like, the physical infrastructure, the communications infrastructure, the control systems that enable you to respond quickly to disturbances, the markets that may lay on top of that where you have five-minute prices or 15-minute prices and parties responding to price signals, all the way to the regulatory framework, to the policy objectives. This, this uh, science of system architecture is essentially aimed at what they call ultra-large-scale complex systems. How do you design them so that they achieve the policy objectives you're trying to accomplish and do so in a way that they work well, they're efficient, et cetera? Um, so anyway, the Department of Energy is, um, is leading this initiative, working through some of the national laboratories. And so they're thinking at it from the top-down perspective, which is let's look at it as a whole system, recognizing that at the local level we're going to have all of this diversity, and so we need a system that functions to uh, accommodate all the diversity and at the same time at the high level runs uh, efficiently and reliably. So I think there's a lot that's going on already, and, uh, yeah. and for the most part the Federal Regulatory Commission and Department of Energy have their eyes on this. The state commissions are looking at it. It's just proceeding at different speeds in different places. So let's say that I'm a listener uh, somewhere uh, across the globe, and it, it doesn't necessarily matter where. Uh, let's just say that I'm part of the bottom-up uh, movement for this. I, I, I really love what you're saying. I love the vision for a distributed grid system. I love the idea that we can be our own power producers locally. What would you say is the next step that I could take in terms of advocating for this? Uh, how, how do I spread the word, and what's, what's the most compelling arguments I would use in layman's terms to communicate with my fellow citizens? Well, um, I guess the way I'm, I'm thinking about it is um, we need um, essentially what I'd call a parallel revolution in localization. Um, I this this energy vision that I described really talks about electricity. But if you think about it in, in a larger context, there are ways in which communities need to ask questions about how do we have resilient communities with a maintain a high quality of life as we go into a future where we see a lot more potential for instability in the form of 
whether it's global economic shocks or cycles or national economic cycles or climate effects, um, weather variability and volatility, um, as well as local communities, cities, counties having budget crunches and having a hard time funding local municipal services and schools, et cetera. Let's rethink the whole notion of community and and how that works. There's a a, a very nice film I'd recommend called The Economics of Happiness that you can watch online. And it talks about essentially what is now a a pretty widespread global, it sounds almost contradictory, a global movement of localization, which is to redefine what we mean by community. So I think where it starts is, Get to know your neighbors really well. Have conversations with them about how you impact the ecosystems through your behavior. You know, how much of the stuff we buy is packaging that we throw away? And can we start talking to the stores in our area, the supermarkets, and say, I don't want all this packaging because it floats out to sea and creates a huge island in the middle of the Pacific that poisons fish and birds. Um, And to me, it's really starting different kinds of conversations with the people that we see every day about our impact on the earth, about a sustainable future for our children and grandchildren and dogs and cats and all the animals and trees that we love, Um, and really thinking more as full citizens and not just as consumers. Lorenzo, I have one other suggestion, which I want to make, because anybody who has heard what you've been saying for the last half an hour undoubtedly will appreciate the wisdom of what I'm going to suggest. What you need to do, this, is a, this, this show, as everyone knows, is an MP3 file you can download. What you need to do is listen a couple of times more to what Lorenzo's been saying. Lorenzo is a distinguished professor of energy and economics, and what he's been doing is he's been discoursing on what would be an upper-level graduate course and how the world's energy system is changing from the bottom up. I would urge you, if you think it went too fast and there was too much in there, you're right. If you listen to it two, three, four, five times, you're going to love what you hear. Send us an email, and if there are specific things that you would like us to get Lorenzo back on the show, we'll get him back and deal with those specific issues. Because what he just covered is an enormous landscape. So please don't feel bad if you feel like a lot of it went over your head, because it probably did. But when you get into it and you unpack it, what you're going to find is it's a very consistent picture he's painting, and each element, his environmental statements at the end, are absolutely tied to what he said at the beginning of his remarks with regard to the distributed energy systems of the future. So I urge you to listen carefully to this. Please send us some questions if you have them. We'd love to give them to Lorenzo and have him respond. And uh, I think I can't thank you enough, Lorenzo, for all the work you do in the world, for the expert you are, and for coming on the show. Well, you're very welcome, Ronaldo. And I have to say that since I first met you and and Matt and began talking with you about things, um, I'm I'm delighted to be able to collaborate with you in this way. I think the work that you're doing with the academy, especially in the energy area, as well as this radio program and trying to rethink how business works for a sustainable future, these are also really valuable contributions. And I'm I'm glad to be working with you both. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Yeah, appreciate it. Talk to you soon. Okay. Goodbye. Oh, I cut him off there. Thanks, for Lorenzo. You're still listening, and I just dropped the last word that you said. But uh, we really appreciate your time on this and your thinking and the great questions that you send in as well. Um, Ronaldo, you know, to your last comment there, I think that the bottom line that anyone can grasp is that it makes sense as we move into the future to do and reinvent all of our old systems that 
as we're seeing with oil spills and blackouts, these old systems are failing us. And the question is, just like we have an iPhone that's replaced that old uh, landline phone that everyone needs to have sitting on their desk, and it weighed about 100 pounds, and now you carry it around in your pocket. What is the new upgrade to our various systems, and how do we get from the kind of 19th or early 20th century electricity grid to the grid of the future? Um, And how do we do these services and and perform these critical tasks in a way that is more efficient, takes advantage of the amazing amount of data and computing power we have, and serves our ability to live our lives while reducing our impact on the planet? Well, you know, just touching on that last couple of thoughts there, you know, Matt, what people don't realize, one of the great lies that is told repeatedly, so people tend to believe it and it's not true, is that to change our electrical grid system to a fully 100% renewable one is something we can't afford when the reverse is exactly the truth. Meaning, every day that we are transitioning more of it, we're making more money for ourselves. The example I gave at the beginning of the comments to Lorenzo about a guy who's making 11% on his money because he bought solar cells and is saving $6,000 a year close to it on his electrical bills, that is precisely the way that you benefit in this new economy. And see, every time the world changes its form of energy, whether it went from running water to wood to coal to oil to gas now, every time it does that, it creates a massive amount of new abundance, of new wealth. And the same thing is true with renewable energy. It's creating tons of wealth. Let me give you an example. For every job lost on an oil rig, 100 jobs replaces it as a solar installer. I mean, and the quality of these jobs is permanent because we'll be installing solar for 20, 30, 40 years at least. And we'll be training people how to do that. And we'll be doing efficiency engineering on our houses and our buildings. We'll be doing thin film on our windows. There's so many jobs that we will create because we will have unlocked this enormous, greedy maw that has grabbed us. So you know the old expression, snatching victory from the jaws of defeat? The jaws of defeat are the old fossil fuel system, which is going to kill us as a human civilization through climate change if we don't act, and is sucking the blood of the society dry by pumping it into oil company profits. If we turn that around, and we snatch victory, victory is taking our energy future into our hands, exactly as Lorenzo said. It's it's breaking through to the top from the bottom, rather than being the victim of what the bottom pushes down, what the the top pushes down to us on the bottom. So it makes us money. It's, It's hugely successful in terms of financially good for us, but because we are told the opposite in advertisements, then we tend to believe it, when we should be extremely skeptical. Whenever you hear that an ad is brought to you by clean coal or clean natural gas or any other clean fossil fuel, know that you are being lied to because the word clean cannot appropriately be put in the same sentence with any fossil fuel. Period. Ronaldo, on that point, I think it's really important, and, and we didn't have this on our agenda, but I want to mention it, that everyone has been hearing internationally about the oil spill in Santa Barbara. Uh, and that's on the coast, and we all love the coast here. It's the most beautiful coast in all of California, in my opinion, and maybe even the world. Um, the The bottom line is that that oil spill has totally demonstrated the need for us to shift locally and internationally off of fossil fuels. And the energy in the room at our monthly meeting where we talk about this stuff all the time was incredible. We we get easily over 75, 100 people in a room every month to talk about this specific issue. And this, this month's meeting last night was incredible because 
everyone was there to stop fossil fuels and to create renewable energy. I mean, the movement is taking off in a way that I, I only dreamed of. And, and if there's other other places organizing like this, I mean, the, the, the shift is happening even faster maybe than Lorenzo predicted. Yeah, and, and, and you know, I mean, it's happening both because of, of this, the old system is, is increasingly struggling and the new system is becoming, as he pointed out, increasingly economic. But I just want to touch on the Santa Barbara spill there for a moment. Um, so that spill, and folks, if you don't know it, we've now tracked oil blobs that have hit as far as 74 miles from the spill site down the coast of California, 74 miles of pristine beaches. It's all the way down to Newport Beach in, in Orange County. Now, I share that with you because had the Santa, Santa Barbara County allowed the oil companies to spray what are called dispersants, which are very toxic chemicals, which drive the oil globules down to the ground under the seabed, where they stay basically dangerous for many, many, many years, by refusing to let them put those toxic chemicals into our water here in, in California, we were able to let the full impact of the spill be felt by the entire community. So it isn't just Santa Barbara that's walking on tar balls on their sand beaches today. It's everybody between Santa Barbara and Newport Beach, which is good because it's bringing home to them the, one of the small, relatively speaking, small hidden costs to fossil fuel. You know, when you have a when you have a break in a pipeline and you rupture it and you you spew 100,000 gallons of oil uh, into the into virgin terrain, uh, that's a very terrible thing. You know what they call it when you have a rupture in a renewable energy system? It's called a sunny day. Okay, when yeah. you have too much sun, you're happy. So so you, people need to realize that the, the the side effects of the fossil fuel era have been killing us for so long. We were blind to it. I'll give you one analogy. People in London actually believed that if they, can, if they didn't let the air of London become filled with black soot that was so thick and so carcinogenic that you could, literally couldn't see in London because of the fog of, of soot in the industrial era, early ages of the industrial era, they were told that was a consequence, a cost of forward economic progress. Guess what? We got rid of the soot, and London's better off today than it's ever been economically. So don't believe the, one of the great lies, which is you can't afford to do this right. In fact, folks, you can't afford to do it wrong much longer. So, Ronaldo, I want to shift now to our uh, doomsday clock and use it as a setup for our conversation about the international economy. Uh, last month, we predicted we, we set the doomsday clock at nine minutes to midnight. Have you seen any change there? Yeah, I've seen uh, both pressure forward and pressure backwards, so I'm going to leave it uh, where it is at nine minutes. The pressure to move it uh, back from uh, to 10 minutes from 9 would be the fact that the Congress, although they continue to not to stimulate as I wish they would, the Congress has been more functional in the last couple of months. Uh, we've seen minor things get done, but we've seen some minor things get done. Uh, the Republican disarray, which is causing cracks within their previously monolithic structure, has permitted some legislation to get passed. I'm hoping that that crack in their monolithic structure will permit some meaningful bills to get passed, which don't violate uh, some of the more basic um, underpinnings of the current economic situation. So, for example, we have a, a freeze on increasing in military spending because we have a freeze on domestic. If we're going to change the freeze on military, we've got to change the freeze on domestic. There's been an attempt to unfreeze military, to go 
crazy again with military spending and not do anything to stimulate the domestic economy. I'm hoping that the, the, the crack in the, in the Republican side of the aisle, as evidenced most recently by Rand Paul, I don't know if we're going to come back to Rand Paul or Bernie Sanders, but it, it, Rand Paul basically has done us a favor by slowing down the renewal of the Patriot Act. I, I think his policies on domestic matters, like, uh, for example, his belief that the uh, uh, the Equal Rights Amendment, uh, we, we, we shouldn't, we should, not the Equal Rights, the, um, uh, the, the 1968 uh, law that Civil prevented, Rights Act. Civil Rights Act that prevented discrimination where blacks weren't, could not lawfully sit in a lunch counter before that act, uh, Rand Paul would return to that so that he would make it legal for an individual business owner to basically refuse to serve a, a black, a brown, a yellow, a gay, or anybody, or in fact, that mattered his sister if he didn't like her. So th- that 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 part of Rand Paul's domestic philosophy I don't agree with at all, and I think is very foolish. But I am glad that he brought attention to the fact that we don't need the government constantly sweeping every telephone call made in America up into a giant database. I think that is too much, Big Brother. I'd like to further reduce the impact of the Patriot Act, but I'm glad he took a stand. Well, that break in in in, in the Republican side of the aisle will probably manifest itself again in the military spending bill that's coming up. And if it does, it permits the possibility for a much more even-tempered conversation of balancing domestic needs as well as military uh, issues. And, and, I mean, when you think of what we've poured, $3 trillion into Iran and Iraq and Afghanistan, I mean, in Syria, well, actually, just if you take Iraq and Afghanistan, it's $3 trillion. Lord knows what it is when you consider what we're doing to Iran and, 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 and Syria. At $3 trillion, a million people dead or badly disrupted, it seems to me that it's really critical to say, wait a minute. If we can spend $3 trillion over there on a completely foolish errand that even Jeb Bush agrees should never have happened, that his brother should not have started that war, well, can't we say a fraction of that could be spent so that we wouldn't any longer be the 27th country in the world when it comes to public education? Where we wouldn't be the only country in the in the in the in the, in the Western democracies where where you cannot go to college without indenturing yourself to life to debts you won't be able to pay. I mean, can't we do something rational with our education system as an example? And can't right. we do something rational with infrastructure? So, Ronaldo, just to just to clarify, you're seeing a lot of you're seeing a potential opening in some congressional and bipartisan and and reasonable action in, in government as a positive that would be pushing the clock. Uh, further away from midnight, away from collapse. Uh, what do you see on the other end, though, that's pushing it towards well, a potential collapse? And that's the transition thought into the, the European situation. I think the Greek exit uh, is going to – I think it, first of all, I think it's the best thing for the Greeks to exit. I think they should exit and start printing drachmas again. People who've heard the show know that view. Uh, I think, though, that the implications for the European European monetary union, not the economic – so, so the European – economic organization, if you will, has two layers. One is 27 countries who make up the common market. And then there's 17 countries, of which Greece is one, that have a common currency called the euro. I believe that the die is almost irreversibly cast for the Greeks to exit the euro. That will be destabilizing for Greece for a few months. But I think that inside of six months to a year, at the most, Greece will be far better off having done it. And when you take a country like Greece, who's been in recession permanently for eight years now, and a country that has 50% unemployment, and they're telling them that they have to keep it up and increase the unemployment, which is what Germany's telling them, I think it's crazy, and Greece is going to exit. But when they exit, 
as you've already started to see in the stock market yesterday and today, the biggest losers are going to be the French and German banks. That's what this fight's about. And it strikes me as crazy that the Germans are going to push this hard to make sure the Greeks don't get a deal. Because when they do, it's going to create some significant economic destabilization for Europe. So that destabilization could play itself out in strange ways, and therefore I can see some pressures towards moving the clock forward. But since I see there's both, both sides of it, I'm going to say let's leave the needle where it is. Excellent. Uh, anything else on the international economy front that you want to mention before we uh, wrap the show, Ronaldo? Well, the trouble is there's so many things we didn't get into. I guess we'll have to do them next time. I think the number one thing I'd like to look at for people is you, when you hear people say that China's not growing as fast as it used to, oh, my gosh. Remember, fast as it used to was 10% or more. They're still doing 7 We'll be lucky, as you heard earlier in the show, to be doing 25 to 3%. Uh, India is not growing as fast as people would like, but it's still going to be well over 4% this year. Uh, Europe continues to go sideways, but for a very simple reason. They continue to do this crazy austerity thing, which the Republicans in this country want to do and forced on this government, and austerity never works. So I, I see Europe going sideways. I see China growing at at least 7%. I see India picking up well above 4%, could hit 5 I see um, the, the countries like Russia in serious trouble and are going to get into worse trouble financially. Uh, and I see other places like Brazil struggling uh, to get on even footing again, and I think they're going to have a very tough time doing it. So it's a mixed bag economically, but if I had to say net-net what's going to happen to the global economy, it's going to be a positive for 2015. And I think it could be much more positive if Angela Merkel and the Germans would ease up on the Greeks and ease up on this whole austerity thing so we could have more than one economic engine in the West. The United States is the only economic engine in the West. Canada, too, but it's a small engine, so it doesn't have the impact. Um, it doesn't really make it easy for any of us to proceed forward. Last but not least, as you know, we continue to be negative on the price of oil, meaning that uh, I think that the price of oil will not get above $65 a barrel. Uh, we've said that on the show several months ago. And I saw the American Petroleum Institute just last week released a statement saying that they could indefinitely frack oil at $65 a barrel. So it's their clear statement that at 65 they can survive and prosper. Knowing that, oil's not going to go above $65 a barrel. For West Texas Intermediate Crude, remember that's always about $5 a barrel less than Brent because of shipping costs. Excellent. Well, a quick note for our listeners before we wrap up. The World Business Academy is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and our work relies on people like you uh, to join in and help support it. We have a $25 a month associate member level that I'd like to invite all of you who are listening who are able to afford it to join us at. Uh, if you go to worldbusiness.org, again, that's worldbusiness.org, and click on Become a Member on the right side of the page, you'll see a link that will take you to a page to make a uh, monthly contribution, and we deeply appreciate it. Uh, on behalf of the Academy, uh, thank you for joining us today, and we look forward to speaking with you next month. Thanks, Matt. Thanks to all the listeners, and um, let's talk about real estate next month. I think it's going to be a fun conversation. Excellent. Thanks, Ronaldo. Take care. Thank you. <laughs>